Most national anthems are specific to the country they represent. They usually list the reasons why citizens should love their nation above all others. Like Advance Australia Fair. Australians, oh, let us rejoice, for we are one and free. Or they're about an event that was fundamental in creating the nation, like the Star Spangled Banner. But a few anthems aren't about nations at all. They don't celebrate the country, they don't even name it. They celebrate an individual. And the most famous of those songs is actually the one that started the whole national anthem craze. going to look at the history and possible future of Britain's national song as we continue this series on national anthems, the worst songs in the world. My name is David Pate. I'm a broadcaster, writer and journalist in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It all began on a Saturday night in 1745 at a London theatre. The audience was restless and concerned. A Scottish army led by Bonnie Prince Charlie was marching on London to overthrow the British King, who sat on a throne that Charles Stuart's grandfather had been ousted from. It's a period of history that Paul Monod knows well. He's a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont and the author of several books about the Jacobite Rebellion. There was a real threat and it came up out of nowhere. The, uh, the Jacobite army really had come together with incredible speed. Uh, it had advanced across uh, Scotland and into England um, in, in, in a matter of just a few weeks. And it took everyone in Britain by surprise. Uh, they, they weren't really, even, even the Jacobites themselves had not been expecting it. So uh, by the time uh, they got as far as Derby and they were, uh, they were threatening the capital, um, really the, the 
in some people's minds, the, the, the game seemed to be up. I mean, it was the end. And there was panic. There was, uh, there was a great deal of concern. As a result, uh, London was in something of a panic. The musical director at London's Drury Lane Theatre had an idea. Thomas Arne knew about the power of patriotic music. He composed the tune to Rule Britannia. The composer wanted to inspire the audience with another patriotic piece. What he came up with was a new arrangement of an old tune, one that had been already matched with lyrics praising the king. The audience on that night in 1745 loved it. A newspaper account said the song was met with universal applause and repeated huzzas. It was such a hit that other theatres adopted the practice, and while the Jacobite rebellion was crushed, the song kept going. In all probability, uh, it would have passed into, uh, into history except that they kept doing it. Paul Minaud says that no one at the time thought of the song as a national anthem because there was no such thing. The whole idea of a national anthem is something that is, uh, well, it, it postdates God Save the King, and nobody thought of it as a national anthem when it first appeared. It was thought of as a an interesting and delightful song, one that could have a place at the end of theatrical performances, but not as something that would be used more broadly. The song spread so quickly that within a few years, it was being sung whenever and wherever the king showed up. The novelist and diarist Fanny Burney witnessed a royal visit to the seaside writing, The king bathes, and with great success, a machine follows the royal one into the sea, filled with fiddlers, who play God save the king as his majesty takes his plunge. As the popularity of the song spread, other rulers decided that if the British king had his own theme song, they wanted one too so they adopted similar songs, presumably believing their subjects were thrilled at the chance to show their loyalty in song. The era of national anthems had arrived. Most nations later dumped either their monarchies or the anthem that praised them, but the British anthem stuck around. I think that calling it a national anthem is a bit misleading because in many respects, it's, it's a declaration of affiliation or loyalty. It's a way of saying, this is, this is who we want to have as king. But it's not really 
a declaration of of national loyalty or of affection for the nation. It, it doesn't really have much to do with that. Paul Minode says that in many ways, the actual words of the song don't matter. It's a way of, of announcing what side you're on, basically. And I think that because of that, it, um, it has a, an importance to it that is um, not conveyed very well by the words. Uh, it's really contextual. The importance of, of uh, God Save the King is something that comes out of the whole, the whole context in which it's sung. Frankly, the, the words, to anyone who, who considers them with any care, uh, the words are pretty disappointing as a, as a national anthem. So if the words are pretty disappointing, what about the music? Philip Shepherd has a unique view of national anthems. The British composer and conductor was hired to arrange and record all the anthems for the 2012 London Olympics. His recordings will be used until at least the 2036 Games. He's not quite sure why the British anthem generates such passion. It has no tension within it, which is very strange because most music that moves people has tension either in the melody pulling above or away from the harmony or at least rhythmically diverging from it. In terms of musicality, it's not something that I think gives people goosebumps on its musical merits alone. It's it's not Packle Bell's canon, you know, if we're looking at what you know, pieces that everybody would know, which is all about harmonic tension and eventual resolution. It's something that has this nature to it that is just absolute. Shepard thinks that part of what makes an anthem work is a combination of the music, the time and the place. You've got the perfect triangulation of, of, of a place, a time, a point of change. And harmony can be the thing that delivers the goosebumps right, in, right into that point. That, that's honestly how I, how I see it. I talk about goosebumps a lot because it's, it's the main incentive for anything I do. It's like, you know, how do you shorten the time to goosebumps as much as possible? Um, but I think you can also engineer music to, to a degree where you, you can make goosebumps more likely, and that can be in the way it's performed, or that can sometimes be in the way that harmony can create these beautiful tensions. And, and tensions that are the beautiful are ones that have a, a resolution that, that will happen. Um, and I think my point about our anthem is that um, the tension isn't built into it. It's as impressive as, as Stonehenge is, is extraordinary because it's absolute. It's just, and yet there's a beauty in the fact that 
it's taken a lot of effort to to make it you know there's there's something in that of something being block like and and reassuring for people actually in it being sort of monumental and quite simple that that I that I have to respect um it's not that's not the kind of music necessarily that I would listen to in my spare time put it that way God Save the King has never been officially adopted as a national anthem. It just assumed that position and has never been challenged. But the British government recognised its importance as a national symbol and used it as the centrepiece of efforts in the 19th century to rebrand the monarchy at a time when its future was being questioned. The British establishment was alarmed at the rise of Republican sentiment throughout Europe and even at home. So tying together patriotism, the monarchy and the nation around the idea that Britain was the world's greatest country with the greatest empire was a way of keeping nasty revolutionary tendencies in check. If you believe you're the number one nation, then you must also have the number one national anthem. What happens to it is kind of interesting because um, it becomes a kind of automatic reflex uh, of, 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 of patriotism so that by really the late 19th century, the words don't matter anymore and the expression of support for the monarchy is is, is of secondary importance. It becomes the British anthem and when it becomes the British anthem and is sort of fully integrated into that role it has a new significance and it's um, it, it is if you want competing with all the others and because everything British has to be best it's represented as the best national anthem um, the, the, the one that everybody else wishes they could sing and as something that um, gives a particular unity and purpose to the whole nation. So whereas it didn't originally have that meaning, it, it, it wasn't a celebration of, um, of, 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 of the unity and purpose of, of the people in their devotion to the nation. It becomes one. It, it becomes that kind of statement. Um, and it it becomes it almost in spite of the words which which don't really make much sense in in that context but it does show you how songs take on different meanings according to their context there's one obvious problem with the british national anthem it ties the idea of being british to having a monarch to reign over you but if the monarchy goes, then the anthem no longer makes sense. There's only a couple of anthems in the world that are about a person rather than about a state or a place. And this one is entirely about the monarch. Philip Shepherd quite likes the idea of changing the anthem. I'm more of the Billy Connolly opinion that it would be much more fun to march around to the theme tune of The Archers, which was his proposal, being a Scotsman yourself. Sure, appreciate that. Let's just provide some quick background to explain what Philip Shepherd is talking about there. The Archers 
is a long-running BBC radio drama with a well-known theme tune. And Billy Connolly, of course, is an equally well-known Scottish comedian. This country is in a terrible state, according to some people, and I know why. Now, you blamed it on lots of things, and all unemployment, and the value of the pound, and all sorts of other magic things. It's because the national anthem is boring. <laughs> so I think it's time for a change. And I think a refreshing change would be to use a theme from the archers. <laughs> the archers theme tune isn't likely to replace God Save the King, but the idea of a different anthem isn't a new one. Even some British monarchs seem to favour the idea. King George V apparently preferred Jerusalem as a national anthem. And the song is actually used as England's anthem at some sporting events, like the Commonwealth Games. Philip Shepherd likes the song. If there's a tune that sits in opposition to God Save the Queen, it, it, or God Save the King, it, it's that. I mean, it's, especially as we know it in Elgar's version of it, which is harmonically astounding. And I mean, even it's one of those pieces, even thinking about it, I can give myself goosebumps. It's just, it, it's extraordinary.
and here's where it gets potentially interesting. There is no law that makes God Save the King Britain's national anthem. It just happened. The royal family's official website notes, There is no authorised version of the national anthem as the words are a matter of tradition. Additional verses have been added down the years, but these are rarely used. In fact, there have been many extra verses added than dumped, like the one that calls on God to scatter our enemies and make them fall, or the one that calls for the crushing of the rebellious Scots. It was those kind of lines that prompted the current king to call the anthem non-politically correct during the Queen's Golden Jubilee back in 2002. So if Charles isn't a huge fan of the anthem, then he has the power to change it. After all, it's his song, so his rules. Maybe it's time for a rethink. Historian Paul Minode thinks perhaps the anthem has lost some of its power. I think that today, national anthems have really, um, they're probably at something of a low point uh, because they no longer uh, have the, the, the sort of ability to summon up the whole people, to summon up the nation. I think that in many ways, God Save the King no longer carries the sort of um, the broader significances that it did in, in the, the period of, of imperial splendor. And Philip Shepherd sees an opportunity for the new king. I'd love it if the incoming king had to write their own anthem. I think that would be super. Charles is a cellist. I mean, he's, you know, he's got the musical training, so maybe, maybe that would be it time for a review of it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against that. Who knows? Maybe King Charles will encourage a different anthem, Jerusalem, or that other rousing British national song, Land of Hope and Glory. There is precedent for more than one anthem. Other monarchies like Denmark and Norway have both national anthems for the country and royal anthems played at events where the monarch is present. Perhaps Charles could just follow Norway's example and adopt its royal anthem. After all, it does sound very familiar. Mm -hmm. 